We come back to this passage and this series that we simply are calling the wrath of God. For some people, the message of God's wrath summarizes just about everything that is wrong with the church in America and the church of the modern age. The church, uh, they would tell us, is too focused on what it is against or what God is against or what the Bible is against. That if we want to survive and if we want to thrive, then we need to spend less time talking about things like God's wrath and more time talking about the things that we're for. Less time talking about what we're against and more time talking about what we support. And so they, they would look at a passage or they would look at at least a message about the wrath of God as everything that's wrong with the church. But as we've been seeing, the message of God's wrath is really Paul's way of understanding everything that's wrong with the world. In fact, it is for Paul... It is the message of the gospel. It is the message that he must preach. It is the way he defines the gospel, the way he contrasts the gospel. And in fact, for Paul, with no clear enunciation of the wrath of God, he would have no explanation for the way things are in the world. And this is really what he has been unfolding for us beginning in verse 18 with that remarkable and profound declaration that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We've been slowly sort of unfolding the elements of how this is so as Paul's been taking us through this, noticing you remember, first of all, that the wrath of God is, excuse me, first of all, the wrath of God and its revelation. The fact, Paul says, that it's already evident, it's all around us, it's visible, particularly in the moral degradation of the world around us. This is the direct result of God's wrath. And last week we looked at the reasons for this, because as verse 19 and 20 say, through creation, God made his existence plain to every living creature, every living uh, person, that is. And yet in verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And so because of this rejection of God and because of this rebellion, Paul tells us, they became foolish, verse 21. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the result of this sort of a re- rejection of God was, for mankind, it was futility in his thought and darkness in his mind. Or as we said last week, it's futility in his mind and faultiness in his interpretation of the world around him. A profoundly negative impact on the mental and rational and moral and even emotional capacities of the human mind because of his rejection of God. 
this profound darkness impacts every human being rejecting the wisdom of God, Paul says in verse 22, and claiming to be wise, mankind became fools. So in other words, establishing himself, establishing his wisdom as the primary reference point for everything he understands in the world, he actually becomes foolish. And verse 23 says he begins to give glory and honor to the creation rather than the creator. Everything's upside down. Paul will eventually explain to us or contrast for us what we need to do when you get to Romans chapter 12. He he sets it all in contrast when he tells us that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices uh, which uh, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, not, and not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So, so he will call us to a right orientation, to a correct relationship to God, to a, a resistance about uh, to being conformed to what's taking place around us in the world and a transformation of our mind back to what God intended. But we are a long way from there. Because right now, Paul is defining for us and delineating for us this appalling exchange that takes place all around us every day in the messed up world that we live in where the created order has rejected their creator. And this this is the core reason why God's wrath is so kindled. This is why God is revealing it and manifesting it all around us. You could summarize it as misdirected worship. You could summarize it as misdirected glory. You could summarize it as misdirected honor. But as Paul says over and over again, they, they were giving worship, they were giving honor, they were giving glory to the creation rather than the creator. Whether it was, as we mentioned last week, brute idolatry, or whether it was more sophisticated philosophy, over and over and over again, the created order was giving honor and glory to itself and not to the creator. And so God's wrath is kindled. And all this lays the groundwork for what Paul begins to tell us in verse 24 about the results of God's wrath. And he basically lays out, or what he lays out here for us, is that because people have so abandoned God, God abandons them. It isn't necessarily... Fire raining down from heaven. That's not how God manifests his, his wrath. It's not the earth opening up and swallowing up a bunch of sinners. It's not even a, a bolt of lightning striking someone dead out of the sky. Although those are occasionally ways God has manifested his wrath. And although that is normally the way that people would think of it or characterize it, Paul says in its normal operation, God's wrath is very, very different. God's wrath is revealed in a very different way. God is revealing His wrath by allowing people 
to fully experience the consequences of their their own sin. And so Paul says that like, for example, in one twenty seven, that this revelation of God's wrath is that he allows mankind to receive in themselves. He says at the end of verse 27, the due penalty for their error. Or verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. He actually uses two words there in the Greek, uh, excuse me, the same word, two different ways, so that you could translate verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to an unfit mind. Sort of like Newton's third law of motion, right? Every action has a, a consequent and equal reaction. And, and what he's saying in, in a spiritual sense that God is punishing people simply by letting them receive more and more of the consequences of their darkness. More and more of the turmoil of their messed up lives. This is the wrath of God. And he says it is literally taking place all around us against all unrighteousness, all ungodliness of men. Because they rejected his created order and himself as the creator, he is giving them over to the disorder that they are trying to construct. And the denigration, the the degeneration of society, of their individual lives that comes from that is his wrath. And this is the point. This is the point of his message. This is the point of this passage. That God makes himself known in the created order. Mankind rejects his place as creator. And he sets about trying to create a different order than what's been established by God, by giving honor and glory and thanksgiving to all the wrong elements. And so God simply allows mankind to receive the penalty of his error. The phrase that Paul uses over and over again here is that God gives them up or he gave them up or the New American Standard says he gives them over. You see it in verse 24 He uses the phrase in verse 26, verse 28, every time drawing the connection back to the confused attempt at reordering creation and giving glory to the creator rather than the, excuse me, to the creation rather than the creator. So in verse 24, therefore, uh, looking back to what he just said in verse 23, he says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. And he reiterates it in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, 
malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, etc., etc., etc. This isn't lightning falling from the sky. This isn't fire and brimstone hailing down. This is the primary way that God manifests His wrath. Some people conclude that because you don't see those kinds of immediate catastrophes, because you don't see those kind of dramatic uh, manifestations, they conclude that God's wrath must not be real, it must not exist, or maybe that God doesn't really care, He's not really concerned about all of these kind of rebellious acts that are going on around him, all this kind of violation. But the scripture would tell you quite the opposite, that God has been making his wrath known all around us, not just in Paul's day and not just in our day, but all the time. We even heard this morning in the scripture reading, Psalm 81 verse 12, God says, I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. This has always been the way that God manifests His wrath. This has always been one of the chief evidences of God's wrath against mankind. And that is the messed up lives that we live, the messed up world that we live in. It is one of the proof positives of His existence and of His righteousness. And Paul is saying it is real He's saying it is being manifested, it is visible in the disorder and the deterioration in people's lives all around us, God allowing them to experience more and more and more of the penalty of their error, just just simply giving them over to it. John MacArthur says, like an untended garden, when man is left to himself, the bad always chokes out the good. Because that is the inclination of his fallen uh, nature. Man has no capacity in himself to restrain the weeds of his sinfulness or to cultivate the good produce of righteousness. Man's natural development is not upward but downward. He does not evolve but devolve. He is not ascending to God but descending from God. And if it were not for God's common grace... Every one of us would all descend into the chaos of our own hearts and minds. But in some cases, God even removes more of his common grace. And he allows people to be given over to the disorder of their rebellion. Now, Paul chooses to highlight that in two particular categories in this passage. Where by rejecting God as the creator and the order of his creation, men and women are facing the penalty of their disorderly ways. He could have illustrated it any number of ways. He could have taken any number of sins as an illustration of this. But he chooses to focus on two of them here. He chooses to talk about uh, the sexual confusion for some of mankind. And then secondly, about the social chaos. The sexual confusion and the social chaos of this rejection. First of all, he, he sort of focuses on this sensual or this sexual 
confusion in verses 24 through 27. This is one of the prime examples of how men and women reject their creator and his order and are therefore cast into this disarray and receiving the punishment and the penalty of doing that. Pursuing what is disorderly and confused and God gives them up to it. Or as Paul says in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And in verse 27, men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And all of this because... They were rejecting their creator, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And so God gives them up, Paul says, in some cases to lesbianism, in some cases to homosexual acts among men. And this is Paul's example of what is contrary to nature. This is his example of one of those dishonorable and unnatural desires that rejects God's created order and rejects God's role as creator, this is one of the ways that God is allowing men and women to experience the due penalty in their behavior by literally removing common grace and allowing people to run into this sin. Now, people feel very uneasy in making those kinds of statements. They feel very uneasy talking about the subject. They feel very uncomfortable to listen to other people talk about the subject. They feel a discomfort in their hearts, especially with this passage and the fact that Paul seems to focus on this particular issue as one of the chief examples of God's wrath against an individual. especially in light of the culture around us that's increasingly tried to qualify homosexuality as a non-moral issue, as a civil rights issue, a social equality issue. Culture that has attempted to frame those who would speak against it as being ignorant or backward or uncivilized or in some cases bigoted. A lot of people will go back to the 60s and sexual revolution as the place where attitudes began to shift against homosexuality. You could even begin in 1973 in a sort of an official capacity 40 years ago when the American Psychological Association removed homosexuality from their DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. They removed it as a psychological disease. In that 40-year span, the attitude towards homosexuality, homosexual behavior, has been a tidal wave to the point where today two-thirds of the states of our nation, 37, now have laws recognizing homosexual marriage. Three of them by popular vote of the people, eight of them by votes of their state legislatures, 26 of them by decisions of a judge. 
The earliest of those, of course, was Massachusetts 11 years ago, 2004. And in the span of just one decade, the shift has been dramatic and it's been swift. Of course, we all know that in three months, our Supreme Court will make a decision which most likely and defectively imposes that on the entire land. It's not just, of course, the state laws and the broader culture where attitudes are shifting. Even within the church, there's been a dramatic change in the way that people address homosexual behavior. Over the course of time, and particularly over the last decade, churches have softened their stance towards this issue. Pastors uh, just... A decade or so ago began coming out all over in terms of their sexual orientation, homosexual relationships. Many subgroups that had already formed within the church some 25 years ago. I think the first of those maybe in 1991 and since then uh, just a number of smaller subgroups within various denominations of uh, of these groups wanting uh, to express their homosexuality in some Christian form, only to be followed then by the larger mainline denominations, which have begun adopting official stances, welcoming same-sex marriage as morally accepted behavior, the Episcopal Church, of course, the Lutheran Church, and then, what, three days ago, the Presbyterian Church, USA. Some of the largest evangelical churches in America have made it their policy to accept homosexual couples as members. It was um, seven years ago, I think, when evangelicals were scandalized when Joel Olstein on national TV wouldn't even declare what his position was on homosexuality. That sounds conservative these days. You have churches openly taking a stand, accepting homosexuals willingly into their congregations. The largest church here in Atlanta, North Point Community Church, a couple of years ago, their pastor publicly affirming homosexuals not only as members, but as members of their official ministry teams. Many churches are following suit. Al Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says the issue is now inescapable for every congregation, every denomination, uh, every seminary, every Christian organization. The question will be asked and some answer will be given. And when the question is asked, any answer that is not completely consistent with the church's historical understanding of sexual morality and the full affirmation of biblical authority will mean a full embrace of same-sex behaviors, same-sex relationships. There is no third way. Muller's got it right. No answer is an answer. People are uneasy. They're uneasy about this subject. They feel especially uneasy about this passage and about Paul seeming to single out this community as one of the chief examples of God's wrath. 
against an individual. And there is immense pressure on you to comply, to take at least no stand if you're going to take anything. There's immense pressure on you to accept the fact that when someone lives a homosexual lifestyle, he is simply doing or she is simply doing what is natural to them. They can't help themselves. They were born this way. And even in this passage, people have begun to read Paul's condemnation in light of that sort of psychological dilemma. When he condemns people, for example, in verse 26, women for exchanging the natural relations, people read that in light of modern ideas of what is psychologically natural to them. Paul they would say, is just condemning those people who wouldn't be true to themselves, wouldn't be true to their own inclinations and their own heart. But what Paul is laying out here, not only in that verse, but in this entire passage, is not a a description of internal conflict between what people feel inside versus the way that they act. He's not talking about what is their natural inclinations or their, their disposition or their personality. What he's talking about is the natural design of the Creator. What he's talking about is the role of the Creator in establishing His order, and he's talking about creation's rebellion against it. The whole passage is about our rebellion against our Creator, not our rebellion against ourselves. It's all about us rejecting Him as a Creator, rejecting His created order. And So when Paul's talking about what is natural, he's not talking about our natural desires. He's talking about the way that God established creation. And he's talking about exchanging that. The digression in the passage is, from, is the exchange of truth for a lie, the exchange of God's order of His creation for the disorder of our desires. I mean, let's be honest, men and women may find themselves with all kinds of desires that they feel naturally, desires that they feel like maybe they're born with, but that doesn't make their desires right. It doesn't make their desires moral. Men may have desires for women other than their wife, but that doesn't make it right. Women may have desires for men other than their husbands, but it doesn't make it moral. Those desires might feel natural to you. They might feel overwhelming to you. But they're destructive desires. And none of it means that because you feel this way, that's the way God designed marriage. Or that we would abandon our commitment for one another simply because we have a desire for someone else. Paul's not trying to give some sort of subtle endorsement to what feels natural to us and and he's not condemning when we just go against what feels natural to us he's condemning the rebellion of men and women against god's design rebellion against the natural order as god has designed it a rebellion that in some cases might be formulated or might be expressed in traditional adultery other sort of Uh, uh, vices, sexual vices, but he particularly focuses on homosexuality 
Because while other forms of sexual immorality violate God's design for sexuality at one point or another, homosexuality violates God's design for sexuality at almost every point. You can see this just first of all at a very foundational level. That God designed marriage to be heterosexual. It's the way he made it. It's obvious if you just read the scripture that God, when he created man and woman, he created them, we're told, within the context of this monogamous marriage relationship. The scripture tells us that God made man and then from man, one of his ribs, as a matter of fact, God took it and fashioned a woman and God brought her to him. So God, in his created order, constructed this relationship this way. And not only that, then from that, there is a, an eternal decree that is issued. Because Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus himself, of course, affirms this thousands of years later whenever he's addressing the issue of marriage. This pattern that God established, this pattern that God created, and this pattern that God decreed. God established it, he made it this way, and then he, he sort of established within his legal code, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, strict prohibitions against homosexual behavior on penalty of death. It's never been within God's scope or God's allowance to have anything but heterosexual relationships. This was God's design. Marriage was to be this way, and homosexuality rebels against the natural order. Secondly, homosexual behavior rebels against the natural order simply from God's design for procreation. I mean, if there were any question about what is natural... If there are any question about what is the order of nature or the natural order of sexuality for mankind, the whole process of procreation ought to make it abundantly clear what is natural and what is against nature. The design of our bodies for procreation make it abundantly clear that for a species to survive, we must be in heterosexual relationships. And so homosexuality violates that natural order. I mean, even from, a, even from an unbiblical, evolutionary standpoint, from the standpoint of natural selection, homosexuality violates the notion and the theory that inferiority is eventually overtaken by superiority or better life forms. That there is, in other words, a survival of the fittest. Because homosexuality could not survive as an exclusive behavioral or genetic trait. It couldn't. One secular magazine recently pondered this dilemma. They write, quote, 
If homosexuality is in any sense a product of evolution, then genetic factors associated with same-sex preference must enjoy some sort of reproductive advantage. The problem should be obvious. If homosexuals reproduce less than heterosexuals, and they do, then why has natural selection not operated against it? End quote. It's inescapable. I mean, it's obvious. This is unnatural. And even those who participate in it, they know it. The evidence of creation is all around them. God has revealed himself to them. He's made himself plain to them, and they know it. By the way, this is why the homosexual community is racing to promote what they look at as bisexuality as the pinnacle of the evolutionary process. So that there's at least some outlet for, for procreation because anything else is irrational. Thirdly, homosexuality rebels against God's design not just for heterosexual marriage and not just for procreation, but also for the complementary nature of marriage. Now, for some, it's a non-issue because they reject the biblical teaching on co the complementary of na uh, nature of marriage to begin with. But for those of us who still hold the Bible as authoritative, homosexuality abolishes the basis for the complementary nature of marriage. Simply the fact that God designed men and women within marriage to have complementary roles. God never intended marriage, in other words, to be an absolute equality of roles. I mean, from the standpoint of our relationship with God, our value before Him, there's absolute equality. Genesis chapter 1 makes it abundantly clear that when God wanted to create man in His image, male and female created He them, right? So we are all equally created in the image of God. And Galatians 3 makes it clear that every one of us equally stand before God on the basis of Christ. There's no male or female in Christ. We are all absolutely equal before Him. But when God created marriage, He created it as a complementary partnership, not as an egalitarian institution. God designed marriage just like He designed government, just like He designed the church, to have leaders and to have those who submit. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, among other places, clearly identifies the establishment of those roles along the lines of gender as God created them. Paul even goes on in the chapter to affirm the Old Testament reality that God created men and He created women in their respective roles for marriage and for the church. And so if you accept biblical authority, homosexuality abolishes the basis of true fulfillment according to God's design within marriage, which involves this complementary relationship and in that sense, it violates God's natural order. 
the way God established it in creation. And then one more way in which homosexuality undermines and rebels against the natural order. And that is the design of God to have monogamous relationships. Monogamous relationships. Homosexuality rebels against fidelity and durability of marriage. You say, well, how's that? Well, nothing in the actual act of homosexuality would necessitate that. But statistically and experientially, this monogamous type of relationship hardly ever happens in homosexual communities. One of the most recognized studies of homosexual behavior published in 1978 by researchers Bell and Weinberg found that 28% of homosexual males claim to have had encounters with more than 1,000 partners in their lifetime. 28%. Nearly 50% said that they had had at least 500 partners. And three quarters of those who were surveyed said that more than half of their partners were complete strangers. 1984, two other authors published a combined work titled, quote, The Male Couple. In fact, the two authors, McWhorter and Madison, were themselves a homosexual couple. They published this study in 1984, where they examined 156 gay couples. Of the 156 couples under the survey, only seven were able to maintain sexual fidelity. And all seven of them had been in a relationship less than five years. In other words, they had hardly had time to even express infidelity. not surprising then to hear one homosexual uh, author in his own biography, William Aaron, conclude, quote, gay life is most typical and works best when sexual contacts are impersonal and even anonymous. As a group, the homosexuals I have known seem far more preoccupied with sex than heterosexuals are, far more likely to think of a good sex life as having many partners under many exciting circumstances. End quote. The idea of monogamy within homosexuality is a fantasy at best. It's not even an ideal for most. 2003-2004, the Gay Lesbian Consumer Online Census surveyed the lifestyles of more than 7,800 homosexuals and found that only 15% of couples described the relationship that they're currently in as lasting. 85% wouldn't even label it that as that. Many of the ones who did say that they were in lasting relationships attributed it to the fact that they were in open relationships. In other words, they were open to multiple partners even while wanting to claim one primary partner. All this led... A journalist in the New York Times recently to say, quote, monogamy is not a central feature for many of the homosexual community. Some gay men and lesbians argue that as a result, they have stronger 
longer lasting and more honest relationships. And while that may sound counterintuitive, some experts say boundary challenging gay relationships represent an evolution in marriage, one that might point the way for the survival of the institution itself, end quote. One best-selling author interviewed in, in that same article said, quote, the traditional American marriage is in crisis and we need insight. If innovation in marriage is going to occur, it will be spearheaded by homosexual marriages, end quote. In 2010, a study from England by Christoph Bonello and Malcolm Cross entitled Gay Monogamy, I Love You But I Can't Have Sex With Only You, found that in their study, none of the couples under investigation, zero defined monogamy as sexual exclusivity. In fact, they all engaged in contact with people outside of their primary partners, even though many of them listed themselves as monogamous. In fact, the, the reality of this really sort of unearths the crusade of the homosexual community to redefine the terms monogamy and infidelity. All the way back in 1984, McWhorter and Madison, in their book, had already made a call for gays to redefine fidelity, not to mean sexual faithfulness, but simply emotional dependability. Homosexuality is a rejection of everything God intended for marriage and for sexuality. It doesn't submit itself to God's order and design in any way. All this just highlights the blindness and the darkness, the unnatural nature of this rebellion. And because of the unstable nature of these relationships, they can never lead to emotional satisfaction or stability. In fact, the sad reality is that homosexuality is not just an abuse against the Creator. It is one of the worst abuses of the creation against itself. Of creatures against creatures. It's one of the forms of this rebellion that inflicts some of the most emotional heartache and pain and suffering on those who are trapped within it. You know, we as believers have to recognize this. We ought not isolate ourselves against the homosexual community, against our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends. We shouldn't isolate ourselves against them as if somehow they are the enemies. We ought to engage them out of a great deal of sense of compassion and pity and mercy. Because these are hurting people who have been hurt multiple times by multiple people. I mean, it kind of goes with the territory of this lifestyle. 
numerous studies have demonstrated that homosexual behavior comes with painful physical consequences. Not to mention that 37% of homosexuals admit to sadomasochism and torture practices in their encounters. Some people actually say this is what Paul's trying to mitigate against. That he's just trying to restrict some of these, what they might call more deviant forms of homosexuality. Some people have even tried to suggest that what Paul is simply talking about here is uh, uh, pederasty, I think is what it's called. The engagement of an adult with an adolescent. But the problem is, is that Greek had a word. In fact, the word pederasty comes from a Greek word. There was a word to say that, and Paul doesn't use it. He's not focused on just some subspecies of this lifestyle. The obvious truth is that everything about homosexuality is a rebellion against God's design for marriage the way it was supposed to be. It's a rebellion against nature, a rebellion against its creator. And those who are trapped in it are suffering. They're suffering the penalty of their error. They're suffering under the wrath of God. They're not the only ones, of course. As Paul will go on to say, many people are suffering under the wrath of God, all kinds of sins. People who are you know, rejecting God are being plunged further and further into the consequences of their ways. God's, God's wrath is being manifest all around us in all kinds of ways against every form of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In verse 28, Paul will outline all those sins that lead to social chaos, not just sexual confusion. But this is just one where the rebellion is obvious. And you can imagine the frustration and the sense of frequent abandonment and the loneliness that people in this lifestyle feel. No fidelity in their relationships. No satisfaction the way God has designed relationships. Fear. Frustration, suffering. The loving thing is not to endorse this behavior. The loving thing is not to grow quiet while people plunge further and further into the penalty of their ways. The loving thing is, in fact, to speak out about it. The loving thing is to explain that it doesn't have to be this way. Is to say that this this may be one of the manifestations of the wrath of God. But God has also revealed his righteousness. Verse 17 says that the righteousness of God is revealed for everyone who believes. Every person who believes 
will turn away from the, from the darkness of their way and from the error of their sin and place their faith in God. God reveals righteousness. He reveals mercy. He reveals order out of your chaos and your disorder. He reveals forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. The loving thing for the church, the thing that we ought to be eager to do, is not to stand down, not to hide what the Bible says about the wrath of God. The most compassionate thing that we can do, the thing that Paul was compelled to do, was to frame the world in that context. Because it's only in that context that people are prepared to understand the mercy of God. Only in that way are they prepared to hear the gospel. Well, we have to next week spend a little time in verses 28 through 32 talking about not just the sexual confusion, but the social chaos that's a part of God's wrath. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a song and a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that you would embolden us in the midst of a culture, in the midst of a church that is increasingly fleeing from the clarity of your word, that we would be equipped, that we would be confident, that we would be bold to make known not only the message of your wrath, but the message of your forgiveness. Lord, the message of your wrath is not what's wrong with the church. It's what's wrong with the world. And we're so grateful that we have a message of what can make the world right. But only as they see their rebellion, only as they understand and accept what is plain, what is evident to them. Help us, Lord, to be ambassadors and messengers of that gospel for that cause because of that mercy, the mercy that we've received. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.